My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. With me here is one of my long-time fishing friends, Ian Gaskell, who I met doing the same degree course as me at Liverpool back in the 1980s and ultimately ended up working with some years later at the Environment Agency. Ian is an avid fly fisherman and the subject under discussion here is his particular branch of it, competition fly fishing. Most people, and a great many anglers, look upon game fishing, and in particular fly fishing, as being a genteel, relaxing, almost back-to-nature pursuit. But not you. As a competition fly fisherman, what you've opted to do is deliberately put the pressure on yourself. What is it then about the cut and thrust of competition fly fishing, first of all, that attracted you in, then managed to get such a very firm grip? Well, I think that would probably go back to having started fly fishing and done it for a while i suppose it's a kind of logical progression really once you've caught more and bigger fish you're looking to go on to the next thing and i suppose one of those next things was to turn it into a competitive pastime really when you and i used to fish together particularly on the bigger reservoirs such as chew draycourt and rutland though very competitive even back then you were still just on the cusp of getting into the fly match scene since then, however, you've well and truly broken into it. So talk us through those early days of becoming interested, your first attempts, and the heights it's taken you to in more recent times. Yeah, you're quite right. I did start off as pleasure fishing for trout with the fly. I was introduced to it by a, a chap at work called Bob Preston. He did a lot of that sort of thing and invited me along and I tried it and enjoyed it and began to fish the bigger reservoirs, of course. Like most people, I started on the smaller still waters, the bank fisheries, but sort of graduated onto the, the larger reservoirs and lakes and really just learned as I went, really. Starting with the anchored boat and progressing onto fishing from a drifting boat. Once you realise that that uh, opened up much more options, many more options for you, to, you know, in terms of locating fish. And really, I think the first few competitions that I entered would have been probably down to Bob and his contacts because he was uh, an established sort of competition fisherman and I did fish literally the odd one just to start with a few bank competitions and the very odd lock style drifting boat competitions from there really I suppose it was the the fact that I moved back to the northwest at the end of the 90s 97 I think it was when I moved back to the northwest and then at that time, I got involved with, first of all, Stockport fly fishers, and more latterly, a group of people who uh, fish at Stocks Reservoir, up uh, north of Clitheroe in Lancashire, where there's a healthy pool of anglers who, who do put teams together in competitions, and that's really where the number and amount of competitions that I do fish kind of increased from, really. And were those early competitions open matches, or was there some sort of closed team structure in place which other people wanting to tread the same path should first follow up on? A little bit of both, really. I mean, the early competitions would have been, as I remember it, I'd have been asked to make a sixth man. I mean, a lot of these competitions are six-man events, that the main team competitions. And I would have been asked to make up a six with Bob and some of his mates, and that's how it went on. More latterly now... It's still the six-man format, but now I'm fishing for a team up here and, it, and I'm doing it regularly and, and have been doing so probably for, I don't know, 12 years or more now. But that's how it started, really. 
and it has to be said, progressed to a very high standard with some notable successes to date. Yes, along the way, yeah, here and there. In terms of some of the what you would uh, call the names in, in our sport, some of the famous people, the Ian Bars and Rob Edmondses of the trout fishing competition world, nothing to, to sort of rival their achievements, but um, I've won a few matches here and there, individual and done quite well individually in team competitions. And there's one in particular that I'm alluding to. Well, yes, I suppose it it seems quite recent, but it was back in 2009. Uh, I managed to win the Lexus Individual Championship, which is the European Open Championship, the the biggest one that uh, individually is round at the moment. And I managed to win that on Chew Valley Lake in Bristol. But that's to say, that was back in 2009. But still, I suppose, with potential lessons for the rest of us to learn from, nonetheless. Well, yeah, it was an interesting one because I practiced the day before. It's normal place to uh, to put as much practice as you can in on the event water before the event. And um, sometimes living in the northwest, and a lot of these reservoirs being, well, this one in Bristol, and a lot of them being based in the Midlands... It's not always that easy for northwest anglers to get on the water as often as, as what they should. But on this occasion, we practiced the day before, I think. It was only one day the day before. And the the fishing was on chew at that time of year can be a little bit hit and miss sometimes. But I do remember practicing and conditions being of a light breeze, what would be considered good trout fishing conditions. And although most people didn't empty the place... You know, plenty of fish were caught on certain techniques. Now, having practiced on that day and then coming to competition day, as often happens, conditions change completely. Completely and utterly changed. There was a very strong wind. It must have been blowing a steady 20 miles an hour, I would think, gusting up to sort of 35. It was a unpleasant gusting wind, and it was alternating between cloud and showers and bright sunshine. Not what would be considered good trout fishing conditions on the fly. But I went out to, with, with a certain method in mind and basically scrapped most of the uh, the methods that I'd been practicing with the day before and went out and tried something. Still we figured that the fish wouldn't be too far down from the surface because the lake was carrying a lot of colour at that time. It was a fairly stirred up coloured water so I figured that the light, the bright and breezy conditions wouldn't have sent them down that far. So I started with a, a floating line if I remember rightly and what we would call pulling flies, which is flies that uh, are attractors and are fished underneath the surface of the water. And I do remember catching a fish quite early, and realising that it was going to be a tough competition, that it was quite a, a settler to get a fish in the first half an hour, I think it was. And there were lots of boats, although it's a big lake, sometimes the um, the more popular areas, or the, fish, the areas that are producing fish, get quite busy with boats, especially as this was a 100 angler event, so there have been 50 other boats probably in a quarter of the lake, I would say. And so you could always see plenty of boats around you, and you were aware that it was a little bit busy. But after that initial success, nothing for a while, and eventually chopped and changed with a few methods, and settled on a, on, on a method, which on that day was a slow-sinking line, an intermediate line, and kept basically the same set of flies on that I had. I just changed the line density to allow the flies to sink down a little bit further and put a, a black fly on a double hook on the point which would just allow it that little bit of extra depth once again now it was that wild and windy that it's fair to say that in a lot of competitions especially where the boats are fairly well grouped together you would have an idea 
of what was being caught. You'd see people, see rods bending, you'd see that this boat doing well, that angler doing well. People would be shouting across and asking how many they had, and, and information sort of spreads that way during the course of most normal competitions. The thing with this competition was I didn't have a clue. It was that wild and windy, and turning the boat round to motor back up the drift was extremely lumpy and unpleasant. You couldn't see much, you couldn't hear much of what was going on. And basically, as the match went on, I was picking up fish every now and again. And I think I ended up, through the eight hours, it, we fished from ten until six, traditionally. And I think by the time it had finished, I had had five fish, which I knew the conditions were difficult, but I didn't imagine for a minute that this would be getting me anywhere near the uh, the top placings in the competition, particularly got a hundred anglers out, a lot of local guys. It's a difficult enough feet to qualify for that final out of the regional heats you know it can be very competitive to actually get in the final even so you're fishing around good anglers good competition anglers before i just carry on this the last fish that i got was quite significant because although there's the prize associated and the, and the trophy associated with the lexus championships in that competition also there's a prize for the biggest fish which is a separate entity altogether. And the prize that year was a holiday to Iceland. And I was aware that both in practice and on the match day, and of recent times on you, there hadn't been any of the large overwintered fish coming out. It had mainly been smaller stockies, a pound and a half to sort of two pound stockies, had been the sort of uh, the base weight fish that were being caught. I managed to hook one of around about four and a half pounds, I think it was, which was my last fish, which, if I remember rightly, I hooked on the hang which means basically I'd finished retrieving the flies and that was holding we're holding them at depth just at the end of the retrieve where it's a technique to sometimes catch fish which have followed the flies but not taken them so I had my flies were all the way back to the boat I was holding them at the end of the retrieve and this thing took and jumped and somersaulted three or four times through the water and I, I do remember shouting out that's the holiday <laughs> all words to that effect all the while not realising the significance of that fish and how it would um, come to play out later on in, in the afternoon when the weighing weigh happened. Uh, so the match finished anyway. We all made our way back to the boat dock. And as I say, I can just set the scene that it was very rough. All the boats were bouncing around on the pontoon. It was loud, noisy, wet waves, spray... And in, I suppose in a classic case of, of, of Chinese whispered, I heard talk. The first thing you want to know when you get back to the boat dock is who's caught what. Who's caught what? What's the talk? As soon as you've, you've finished the match and you're putting your gear ashore, you want to know what's gone on. And I heard a rumour that, and I'll give you a quotation here, someone's had nine and they've got a five pounder, right? Now, that initially sort of destroyed any hope I would have had of, of winning the match. But that turned out, as I found out later on, to be Chinese whispered from someone's had five <laughs> and a four pounder. So that got Chinese whispered its way through, through the sort of uh, the people who, you know, the anglers as they finished the match. So that was quite amusing. Um, the weighing showed that there was there was a lot of a lot of blanks out of the hundred anglers. I think there was something like thirty or forty blanks. And I think it was two-thirds of the field had one fish or less. So 
with five fish, I'm starting to think that, oh, you know, I could be, I'm in the top third, you know, this couldn't be bad, you know, it might be, be better than it, it, it seems, I might get into the top ten in the prizes here with this. And as more and more people weighed in, it sort of became obvious that this, this chat with nine fish and a five pounder hadn't stepped forward yet, and we were still waiting for it, and it didn't happen, so I, I stepped forward to weigh my fish, I, I took my four smaller fish out of the bag, and then the fifth one I produced the uh, the larger overwintered fish, which I think was the first one that had been seen for a while on Chew Valley, and uh, that registered a bit of interest <laughs> with the, the organiser, John Horsey, who's a, himself a, a noted competition angler. Uh, and anyway, it turned out that there were six people who'd all caught five fish. So now that four and a half pounder is beginning to uh, to look more interesting to me. And as it turned out, that was the difference. I was first out of all the chaps who'd managed to catch five that day, courtesy of this larger fish. So I managed to win the trophy. Uh, I had the, the holiday in Iceland for the biggest fish, and additionally, I managed to win the the use of a, a Lexus luxury car for for twelve months, which was one of the the four wheel drive and hybrid things that they put out. So that was all very, all very nice. And if I never win another competition again, I don't suppose it'll matter because <laughs> I've won a big one. But yeah, that was one of my better days, I suppose you'd say. And this is primarily boat fishing. Is that through preference, or are there no suitable bank competitions or structures in place? The answer to the question is there are bank fishing competitions in trout fly fishing, and I do fish them occasionally, but I do favour the the lock-style boat competitions. I suppose the main reason for that would be um, just to draw an analogy from course fishing, where people at the beginning of the match draw a peg, and that is your match laid out in front of you, and you... The old adage of you can't catch what's not in front of you was was never truer in, the, in those circumstances. With the drifting boat competition on a lake the size of Rutland Water, for example, 3,000 acres, you effectively have the choice on where you fish. You can move, and if things aren't happening in your first chosen location, you can move to the, to the other side of the lake if you wish. So that's an attractive part of the, the boat fishing competitions. Your match isn't necessarily dictated at the beginning by drawing a bad peg. So how exactly is the competitive fly fishing scene structured? If we just stick to the boat competitions for the time being, there are individual events like the Lexus, individual fisheries run their own individual events, the pairs competitions, uh, four-man team competitions. It would be true to say that I suppose the bulk of the main events would be a six-man team event there are two main ones in this country, one of which is the Lexus team event, which runs parallel with the individual competition, although it is separate, and also the Anglian Water Airflow six-man team event. They will be the two most prestigious that happen in the fly fishing calendar. And as I say, they are, they are six-man teams. They tend to be fished by established teams. There's a little bit of chopping and changing going on, but there are a lot of teams that, that stay the same year in, year out, with the odd change but they are generally established groups of six people who who go out and fish together on a year by year basis and presumably if you're good enough progress sufficiently well to come into contention for the international scene yeah that would be done by the several ways you can fish uh let me see there's four different ways to fish for your country now in fly fishing 
You can fish the World Championships, which would be done on a points basis. That would be a, a team selected on your performance based on both river competitions and lock style boat fishing competitions. It's fair to say that a lot of the World Championships are river biased. So they tend to be populated by all-round anglers because there will be some lake sections in some countries and some in some years. But it'd be fair to say that that was uh, a bias towards river fishing. Lock style-wise, you can go for the England Home Internationals team, which is a, a lock style competition between England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. There's two of those every year. And the way you would qualify for that would be to enter uh, an eliminator there are regional eliminators throughout England and you enter one of those, qualify for a final and then come in the, uh, let me see, I think it's the top 28 now. They, they look to form two 14-man teams, one for a spring international and one for an autumn international. So they look to get the top 28 people. They fooled around with the format of that little bit uh, insofar as they used to retain the four most successful people from the previous match and then get 10. So they were always looking for 10 and 10, i.e. 20 people. But they've since just done it for a straight qualification that the top 28 will make two England teams. The other way of doing it, would there is now a fairly newly introduced bank fishing competition where you can do the same, enter a regional heat and final, and you can uh, enter a, a home international bank-based fly fishing competition too. And without being unduly modest, does that play any part in your current thinking? Yeah, I would like to do it. I would like to do it. Unfortunately, with things like sports funding being what it is at the moment and a, a complete lack of support for fly fishing as a sport, were you to be lucky enough to qualify to fish for your country, it would cost you a few quid as well, which is, is a factor. And it wouldn't necessarily put me off. I would, I would still try to do it. But yeah, I have been in the final a few times and you need to have a good day that day because all the people who get to the final can fish a bit. Uh, and you need to come in that top. It doesn't sound like much coming in the top quarter or whatever it is out of 100 people, but it's not that easily done. I've, I've had a couple of attempts and not managed it. But uh, I'll still keep trying. And uh, yeah, it would be it would be fair to say I'd like to do that before I uh, hung my rods up. To reinforce what you're saying, doing past interviews such as this, I've spoken to a fur cross section of internationals and on the sea angling side of things at least, Self-funding is the norm. But not only that, when these individuals achieve their international ambitions, with the exception of just one, all spoke of disillusionment with the internal politics. Things like your face having to fit, jobs for the boys and the like. From your contacts then, does the fly fishing scene follow that same trend? Well, going back to the world team that I was talking about, I think because that is a selection-based team, even though there is a minimum requirement on points that you have to have. That would be the closest analogy to what you're talking about, where there is a team manager who selects a team of, of I think it's five anglers and a, and a reserve. And they would try and do that based on the venue. They would try and uh, select people who are good on certain types of river or have a proven track record in certain types of fishing that they know they want. But I suppose any team that is selection-based rather than qualification-based will be open to criticism from people uh, thinking that I should have been picked and he shouldn't have been, etc, etc. But that would apply to the world team. The lock style team couldn't be more transparent. If you come in 
the top 28 of the Lockstar final, you're in the team and that's it. So there's no real argument with that. Whether you agree that we always get the best anglers for the best venues is a different argument, but it's a straightforward qualification for that team and there's no, there's no arguments. And how close to qualification do you feel you are at this moment? Not this year, because I fished my qualifier already and didn't get out of it, so that was one of those things, a tricky day up on stocks, and I didn't make the necessary placements to get to the final, so that's it for this year for me, it'll have to be another another go next year. But if you get in the final, you, to fish for England you basically need to have two good days fishing. Of course, people use the word luck, it's better to be lucky than good and all that. I suppose it is true to say that some people have got onto the England team who perhaps what you would look on as being surprising. But all you need to do is fish well in your heat and then five, six months later in the final I happen to have another good day. But that's true of everybody and it wouldn't be fair to uh, to criticise anyone who, who managed to do it because they will have deserved it if they do get through. But yeah, you need to have two good days fishing and on both counts, the heat and the, and the final, you're fishing amongst quality anglers. So, you know, it's, uh, it is a feat if you do manage to do it. Having explored the required driving structure behind competitive fly fishing, can we now start to look a little more closely at some of the mechanisms? In theory, competitive fly fishing is the same as leisure fly fishing in terms of approach, only done with a little more urgency. Or is that too simplistic a view? That statement is correct because what you will find is for your eight hours from 10 till 6, talking personally, I do not take any rests or breaks during that eight hours. I will fish constantly and, and as intensely as I can for that period of time, knowing the difference that one fish can make here or there. Literally one fish can, can get your team through or get yourself through or win, win a match on the basis of one fish. So if I'm going to eat, I, I generally have a good breakfast in the morning and during the day I'll just basically drink water and perhaps uh, stuff a Mars bar in between drifts. Literally as I'm motoring when I can't fish, I will cram something in and that will be the end of it. When, when the boat stops and the drogue goes out, it's fishing and that's it. It, it, it is done more intensely. Um, there will be different techniques and things that perhaps might not be used that frequently by pleasure anglers. But you know that goes down to the development of, of competition fishing and the things you're needing to be doing to be successful and to keep catching. Are there then any specific demands which clearly set match fly fishing apart from pleasure fishing? Well, I think with lockstyle fishing, one of the biggest factors is adhering to the rules because it's not just a free-for-all. A pleasure angler can turn up at Rutland Water and fish with a four-inch minky fly if he wishes not the case for competitions there are a set of rules which must be adhered to involving fly size involving rod length all kinds of other things the fact that you have to drift broadside onto the wind and you must cast only within a 90 degree arc in front of you assuming there's two people in the boat the specific things that you have to stick to and that basically governs the methods and how you fish it's true to say that a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to get around those restrictions in any way they can, and it's all been tried, believe me. People fishing on the edge of the rules and, and dreaming up ways of, of getting around the rules, but it's true to say that that set of rules dictates the limitations of how and what you can fish. 
In theory, then, you should have more chance of catching fish as a pleasure angler, not bound by those rules. Yeah, of course. If you're fishing a, a competition in October and the trout are eating four-inch roach fry and are focused in on eating them, then you're going to struggle with your uh, 15 sixteenths of an inch long competition flights because that, that is the limit of overall length of a fly. The fly length mustn't be longer than 15 sixteenths of an inch and the overall hook size mustn't exceed five-eighths of an inch. And we all, all competition anglers carry a gauge which has both measurements on it so uh, you know it's up to you to check that the flies you're using are within those limits to avoid being disqualified basically. You mentioned earlier practice sessions only to be faced with something totally different on the match day itself. So everything you previously learned instantly goes completely out of the window. No time presumably at that stage for any new trial and error. You need to get down to business pretty much straight away. What clues are you then looking for under those circumstances to act as a well-reasoned starting point? Well, what you would do immediately on, on reaching the water on the morning of the competition is probably mentally compare the conditions from the previous day if you've been practising. First thing, obvious thing, is wind direction. Is the wind direction the same? Will a, a significant change in wind direction or strength have moved those fish that you were catching yesterday? Will they have gone elsewhere? Will I have to start again from scratch? Questions like that, really. And, and as I mentioned before, it's not uncommon f to go and have a good day practising in certain conditions and then to face a complete... 180 degree swing of, of the wind, you know, rain where it was dry the day before, bright sunlight where it was cloudy, all kinds of things that will make you think twice about simply going out and repeating the process as you did yesterday in practice. And that is largely just experience based as to how an individual angler would cope with that and what he would do differently. And it isn't very much a case of asking yourself the questions. How will this have affected the fish? How will this have affected the, the location of the fish, the mood of the fish? Will it have sent them down, brought them up? So you, you have to really think about that hard. I mean, sometimes the night before you'll get a forecast will, which will at least give you an idea things are going to change and you can start your, your preparations then. But otherwise, it's kind of just a case of turning up on the morning and looking what's in front of you, what, what's happening on the lake. As an individual angler, you can adapt as you go along and pretty much please yourself, but being part of a structured team, it's a very different matter. So give us a bit of an insight into how a team like yours works. Are you six individuals working for a collective prize, or is there an underlying plan with team orders, ensuring you follow a certain route, which can only be abandoned under very specific circumstances? There's a lot of that goes on. On a team competition, we would generally all have practised, if it's a, a venue that's not in the northwest and we're away, you know, overnight, we'll have sat in the pub the night before and sat around a map of the lake and all thrown our various contributions in as to how we've caught, where we've caught, which would form the basis of a, a team plan for the next day. Around that, there is a whole range of details and aspects of, of, of team plans. And, and tactics, as you mentioned, is such a wide uh, subject matter. You can get all kinds of things, for example, like certain team members drawing a noted member of another team being instructed to take him somewhere in the lake where th it is known that there aren't any fish to effectively handicap that team. 
Um, I'm, I've never been one for entering into all of that, but it goes on. It happens. The team I fish in uh, are not that way inclined. We, we aren't that ruthless of an outfit that we would consider doing anything like that, but I know it happens. And it's fair to say that team plans in some teams are very, very rigid and that the professionals, because basically that's what they are, the guys who are based in the Midlands, around your Graphams, Rutlands, all those main competition waters that are situated in the Midlands, the local guys, they are virtually semi-professional, they're on the lake all the time, they sponsorship, very difficult to compete against them on the home waters at times because of that and the amount of information they can gather from between themselves and also from the other top teams around there. There's a network which people from my neck of the woods who aren't local aren't often privy to, so it's, it's basically down to you and your teammates to find the information out and form your own team plan. But some of those teams, very difficult to compete against because of their uh, local knowledge and, and, and network of information. From what you just said then, each boat is shared by people from different teams, which while it makes sense, being a non-competitive angler myself, I hadn't really thought much about before. That being the case, who decides where the boat goes? It would be totally impractical to have a, a boatman, if you like, where you would find 50 people willing to sit in a boat and be a referee for a day. It's just not practical. So to get around that, what happens is there is a random draw. The competition organiser makes a random draw so that in every boat there is a member of a, a different team. So you never get to fish with, with your colleague in the same boat. That tends to have the effect of, of refereeing itself so that there's no uh, people attempting to do anything outside of the rules because it's not in the other person's interest to allow them to do that. So that's how that works. As for deciding who fishes where, and some competitions it, it's basically uh, randomised insofar as of a given pair, the first name out of the hat for that boat would generally assume they had control of the engine. Now that only lasts for two hours. It's an eight-hour match. So if Joe Bloggs came out of the hat first and John Smith came out second, then Joe Bloggs would have control of the engine for the first two hours and he would decide where they went, whether the other guy liked it or not. And that's how it works. At the end of two hours, at 12 o'clock, after you've started at 10, at 12 o'clock, if the other chap doesn't like uh, where you're fishing and wants to go somewhere else, he has the right to, to take the boat there to his place and then vice versa and so on and two o'clock and then you know, every two hours it control changes in the boat. There's all kinds of stories where jiggery pokery has happened. If you know Rutland Water at all, it's, it's 3,000 acres and it's basically a large horseshoe shape. The ends of the horseshoe, if you like, forming both the north arm and the south arm with a, a, a peninsula of land between the two. From the top of the north arm to motor around in the boat to the to top of the south arm, you're probably looking at near enough an hour. Bearing in mind it's an eight-hour competition. There are many, many tales of discussions in the boats centering around, well, I want to fish the bottom of the north. And the other person saying, well, I practiced in the top of the south and uh, I want to fish there. And boats toing and throwing <laughs> all day from one to the other. Uh, I don't know if it's an old wives' tale, but I could well believe that that sort of thing does happen and um, people spend more time motoring than actually fishing in those circumstances. I do know one story, actually, which is probably worth 
worth recounting. I won't name the person concerned, but uh, he's not well liked, it would be fair to say, in competition circles generally. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure if he's even fishing anymore, but the closest this person ever got to qualifying to fish the England team, which was something he really wanted to do very badly, was he qualified for the final. It's fair to say he had a degree of uh, expert local help to enable him to do that. Uh, he qualified for the final, got to the final, drew a local expert in the final, and this is, it came from the horse's mouth, it came, this story came from the chap who shared a boat with this person. The introductions in the boat on the morning of the competition, rather than, than, than chit-chat, the, cha- the chap who relayed the story said that he met the guy, shook his hand, showed him the flies that he'd been catching on in practice, put them in the centre thwart of the boat and said, you're welcome to take any of those, this is what I've been catching on, I've been on the lake for four days. I hope we have a good day and I'll try and see what we can do to get us both through. The person I'm talking about's retort to that was, well, I've drawn the engine, we're going where I want, and I'm not showing you any of my flies. So that kind of set, <laughs> set the day off to a good start. But, but what happened was, they went to where this chappy wanted to go, and they didn't catch very well. I think they, they perhaps had a fish or two each. But the two hours came up, and... This guy, who who knew what he was doing, said, "Okay, two hours are up, we're going to my place now. Which they did, and this chap caught a lot of fish. Now, the guy who who I'm talking about didn't do very well, and this guy got a bit of a lead on him. Anyway, the next two hours came up, and rather than stay there where there were obviously fish, he opted to go back to his original area, which he did, and they didn't catch very much. But it came to the final two-hour slot in the competition. And uh, the chap I was talking to, my mate, had nine fish. Okay. Bear in mind, it's a ten-fish limit and time bonus on this on this competition. The other guy, who we were initially discussing, he only had seven. Now, my mate said, Okay, it's now four o'clock. It's the last two hours of the match. I've got control of the boat. We're going to Tim Appleton's. Now that is an area of the north arm of Rutland Water. It's about as far away from the lodge as you can get. And the other chap said, Tim, why on earth are we going to the top of the north arm? There's no fish there. And the other chap said, I know there's no fish there. But I've got nine fish and I might qualify for England with that. But you've only got seven and you're not going to. (laughs) So off they went. He demanded... Which was in his rights that he would take the boat up to the top of the North Arm as far as you could go without hitting dry land. And they fished there for two hours and the chap said the only thing he was worried about was there was the odd very big brown up there. No numbers of fish at all but he was worried in case he got one big one. But neither of them had a touch for two hours. They came home. In those days the top 20 qualified for England. My mate got through with nine fish. 22nd place this chappy. Seven fish, 22nd place, that was the closest he ever got. But a bright in thinking that this particular chap has appeared on TV. Yes. <laughs> you would. Would you I would. be right in thinking it's Coronation Street? Yes. And just to tie up a few loose ends on the tactical planning before moving more into the actual fishing, 
In the more professional and semi-professional teams, is there a manager who gives out specific roles to the individual members? And if so, how rigidly are these roles applied? Yes, two separate things really. In the England team, I haven't had first-hand knowledge of that. From what I understand, they practice for a week before the event. You know, there is a lot of information, a lot of practicing goes on, and a team plan will be formed, formulated from that, which I think you'd be expected to follow by the team manager, as you quite rightly say. In some of the six-man team events, similar things happen, where certain people, they would divide, say, if there were two areas where they'd been catching fish, they might send four boats to one particular area, just based on the, the relative sort of success they'd had in practice. But two boats somewhere else could be somewhere completely different, just to um, to make sure that they uh, got the best from each area, if you like. And yes, there will be instructions handed out, which would say you will fish in this spot in this way for you know two hours, four hours, and then come back later on to say the main bowl of the reservoir where the fish have been turning up later on in the day. So yeah, th- there are team plans, and I suppose it's true to say that the better. <laughs> not the better teams, the, the more professional, successful teams would place great uh, great detail on those plans and, and would expect people to stick to them. Tell us about these time bonuses and how they work, as they're not something I've ever come across in other aspects of match fishing before. No, it's true to say there are different ways of running a, a trout fishing competition. It is changing to some extent as well, but the, the basic different ways they are run is... If the fishery had a normal eight fish limit on their day ticket, the competition will be fished to an eight fish limit, so you kill your first eight. At that time that you catch your eighth fish, your boat partner would agree a time with you, and you would note that time would be signed for on a card. And What would happen then is, depending on how much time was left in the match, you would then get a corresponding weight bonus. Standard time bonus would be £2 an hour, and that would be divided down into 15 minute chunks so for every complete 15 minutes you would effectively add four ounces onto your bag weight of the eight fish that you weighed in things are starting to change now because what happens in big team events when the fishing is particularly good is you get hundreds and hundreds of fish being weighed in bags of eight fish everyone's got eight and there's a lot of uh, dead fish at the, at the weighing scales and i suppose it's Perhaps more to do with trying to encourage things like catch and release and and perhaps the perception of of trout fishing or fishing in general where there is a move now to some competitions having a a lower bag, perhaps a four fish bag, and then maybe continuing the match, not having a time bonus, continuing the match to six o'clock and you are then credited with two pounds for every additional fish that you catch, whether it's a pound and a half or whether it's ten pounds. You were just credited with an, an average fish size, which would most times it works out about two pounds, and that's the way you do it. So you you would then get people fishing for the full eight hours, because it, it, it's true to say that on some reservoirs, when the fishing is particularly good, that people can can get their eight fish bag in an hour and be sitting on their hands for seven hours, waiting to weigh in at six o'clock, which. Again, it might be good for the the results of the team, but not particularly rewarding in terms of having a day's fishing, which at the end of the day is part of it, isn't it, as well? So we have catch and release competitions. We have in the rivers for a long time, they've been completely catch and release and do it on fish length. They will give points for fish length. 
But th there are various ways of sorting it out, but that explains the, the time bonus side of things. Obviously, the result here is the only thing that matters, though I don't doubt you also get a certain amount of pleasure out of the fishing too, particularly if it's going well. What is it then that you do that a pleasure angler probably won't do to give yourself a better chance of getting a good result? <sighs> Difficult question. I suppose it would just go back to a previous answer. It would be the intensity that you're fishing at. You'd be working hard. You'd be um, trying to do your best to spend as little time moving and, and as much time with the fly in the water as possible. And, and that kind of pressure or ethos isn't with a pleasure angler who tend to not to put too fine a point, would tend to potter around more at his own pace where you haven't got that luxury in a competition. You know, you want to spend as much time fishing as possible. All the time, even if you're catching fish, you're wondering, can I improve my catch rate? All these sort of decision-making processes are going through your head. How can I do better? Could I improve by putting three of those flies on it? I've caught every fish on this fly. You know, you do flish three or four flies on a cast. Would I be better served putting four of the same type on? Would that actually spoil things? You know, so you, you have to consider all these little um, questions and, and tactical changes quite carefully. But that's the type of thinking that you're always looking to improve your catch rate. And sometimes you'll make a decision and it'll pay off. And other times you'll change and you wish you hadn't. And that can apply to, to techniques um, all kinds of technical aspects around fly line, sinking densities, floating lines, fast sinking lines and everything in between, or fly type or size, but it can equally apply to where you're fishing, the area, the geographical area of where you are. Should I move? Are the fish here but they've switched off? Am I not catching because they aren't here? There's all sorts of these questions buzzing around your head all the way through the match really. A daft question, perhaps, but in terms of basic hand tackle, and in particular rod choice such as length, is there any difference between the outfit you would be looking to use and that used by a typical pleasure angler to fish the same venue? Um, I mean, the, the rod length one doesn't often come into it. I think the standard lock style rules are that you can use a rod up to but not exceeding 12 feet in length. I, I've never fished with a 12-foot rod in a, in a fly fishing competition. It'd be fair to say 10 feet would be the normal length of um, rod you'd be fishing in a fly fishing competition. But it states that you are only allowed to have one rod assembled at any, any one time. So although you're allowed to take spare rods out with you, they can't be assembled in any way and certainly can't have a reel attached to the butt of the rod or anything like that. So then the question pops up, well, how can I make myself more efficient if I can't have six rods set up, which would be very handy to change from one setup to another, to one sinking line density to another? How do I make it as efficient as possible. The answer to that is to have a reel that has interchangeable spools so you can quickly change from one line type to another in as little time as possible. Other ways of doing it are, are also to have spare leaders made up with flies set up in a certain way and I, I carry two or three different spare leaders set up on holders so that I can, if I have a breakage or I wish to change technique completely I can quickly disassemble the reel, pull the line out, thread a new line and tie a new leader on in a, a small amount of time. The thing is, if you are restricted to those rules, you get better at doing it quicker. Because you're doing it all the time, you're only practicing with Ron Rod, you get good at it, so you get faster, so you, you know it's it works out that way. A bit like pit stops in a Grand Prix, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Silly little things, as I was saying, it's an eight-hour match, which seems like an awful long time, but I've been in matches all too often where 
where maybe all the fish have been caught in an hour and a half window or, or the fishing's been significantly better during it, one hour in that eight hours. And if you're not operational and in the right place and using the most efficient technique, the efficient method, you can miss out. And it's, it's little things like that that can decide success and failure, but it's certainly true. And all kinds of things that I probably don't even give two thoughts to, but thinking it over now, I, I use a, a coarse fisherman's rubberized landing net, not the straightforward mesh jobs woven nylon things. I have a one of these coarse fisherman's rubberized nets, and the reason for that is when you catch a fish and you're using two or three flies, either the fly that you've just hooked the fish on or one of the other droppers, if it goes through the mesh or one of the, a traditional type net, we'll call it, it can be... Sometimes if it goes past the barb, you can be fiddling and faffing to get that fly back out to, in order to recast and get it back in the water for minutes sometimes. The rubberized net tends not to snag the fish up, which means I can catch a fish and they tend to get played pretty hard in competitions, you know, depending on what sort of gear you've got, but the quicker you get it in the net, the quicker you're fishing again. And it can be the case that you can catch a fish, unhook it quickly cast out again immediately and get another one in from the same spot and you might not be able to repeat that process and, that, and that's an extra fish in the net that might take you at the end of the competition might take you another hour to get in, in other circumstances or you might not get it at all so really if you're catching in one area at one time of day and you get a fish you really want to be spending as much time in the water as possible and, and getting your flies back out there because there's a good chance you'll when you catch one you might well get another now it's not just a case of having your flies in the water because they also need to be at exactly the right depth which can be achieved to some extent in a number of ways the most widely used being having the right density of fly line on your reel. So typically, what range of fly line densities do you have available to cover all the eventualities that might present themselves? Everything from a full floating line down to a die 7, what we call a die 7 line, which is sinks at 7 inches a second, which is considered a fairly fast sinking line. And pretty much everything in between. I probably carry 12 or 14 different lines, and that can include you know, a whole range of, of intermediates. I might have 3 or 4 different intermediates in my box, which all sink at different rates, and it may sound silly that 1 or 2 inches or half an inch a second sinking rate difference can't possibly make that much difference but sometimes it does I can't explain why but sometimes it is the difference and if you haven't got that line you know your catch rate can be halved compared to the guy sitting next to you hammering them out one after the other on the correct in inverted commas line so a lot of it you could say some some of it is fads and, and fashion in fishing there's a lot of that but there is some basis in truth. So the bottom line is you have to have a good variety of, of lines in order to be able to make the most out of any day on the water. And of that selection, which over a fishing season do you think gets the most use? I probably have to say my, my full floating line for that. The main reason for saying that is largely because of the way the dates of the competitions have gone just recently. A lot of the main competitions just because of organisers and calendars and things, at the moment I'm fishing more competitions between June and September than any other time. Those times traditionally are warmish weather, the fish are generally near the top. You might be wanting to fish dry flies, in which case the floating line is the only one you can use. Otherwise you're fishing nymphs, 
on, on what we call the washing line setup, which I'll describe for you later on if you wish. Or fishing close to the surface in any case. It's a bit of a generalisation, but in the early season, you're often using sinking lines of the faster variety, die threes, fives, sevens, to get down to, to fish that are sitting deeper in colder water, and you generally pull in attractor type lures past them rather than anything that looks like food. So if I was fishing a lot of comps early in the season I'd perhaps be using a die 5, a die 7 sinking line a bit more often but just the way things are at the minute it's probably my floater and that's quite a good thing because I enjoy fishing those methods probably more than the, uh, the more industrial pulling methods. The natural progression here now brings us on to the subject of leaders. And while it might sound a simple topic, with competition rules as well as other considerations, there's a lot to consider in terms of material, length, turnover and all the rest. So let's explore your thinking on the subject. I'm not sure how it should be, but the way I do it would be generally to fish fluorocarbon most times. Nine times out of ten I'll tie a fluorocarbon leader on. Reasons for that is the obvious presentation benefits that gives you. And the refractive index, it's less visible. Oh, we could do sit here and talk for an hour about fluorocarbon versus nylon, but I, I prefer the fluorocarbon. The only time I would fish mono, traditional nylon mono, would be if I was fishing dries, and even then only in certain circumstances. Sometimes a lot of the fluorocarbons can be quite shiny, so if fishing's tough and the fish are refusing the dries, even people do fish them on fluorocarbon, occasionally me included because it does sink and gives you, you know, a good presentation to the dry fly. Sometimes you want something a little bit more with a matte finish on it that doesn't shine and doesn't reflect light off it. So occasionally I use mono for the dry flies, but pretty much everything else is fluorocarbon. Now lengthwise, there's no restriction on length. There's no competition rules to say it must be within a certain length. Practicality-wise, you're fishing with a 10-foot rod and a team of flies... Obviously, if you hook a fish on the point fly, the end fly on the leader, the top dropper, if it's too far away, can give you problems landing the fish. And um, we've all done it where uh, you've left slightly too long of a length to the point fly and been standing on the boards and stretching your shoulder behind your head trying to land this fish. And, and that's obviously not good for uh, efficient fishing and getting things in quickly. So you've got to be a little bit careful, measure them quite carefully. It's normally a three fly cast, but you can fish up to four flies. A lot of competitions give a rule where you can have four hook points. However you want to divide that up, you can fish four singles, a double and two singles, two doubles, etc. So you can fish four flies in most competitions. Sometimes there is the number of hook points rule, which, which you've got to stick to. And do you go for a tapered leader, stage breaking strains, or straight as it comes from the bolt spool? Generally straight, maybe a lot of that is to do with laziness insofar as when you're fishing a lock style competition, you've always got the wind to help you. The wind is always behind you. So uh, I think that it's true to say it's probably turned me into a bit of a lazy caster really. And I know I feel that sometimes when I'm, I bank fish on the odd occasion and I feel my casting isn't perhaps as, as technically brilliant as it should be considering the amount of time I've been fishing. But I think that stems from the fact that you're always being helped in fishing lock style because the wind's always behind you. And so I less need to fish a tapered leader, really. 
Can we now start to look at what goes on the end of that leader? What you routinely carry in your flybox? Again, to some extent, the contents of that might be governed by competition rules and will certainly be influenced by individual waters and time of year. Even so, give us a run-through of what you feel you must carry. You're quite right, yeah. The, the seasons and the time of year dictate types of flies and types of fishing. Generally speaking, and it is a bit of a generalisation, early season you'll probably be looking at the attractor-type flies, the blobs, the brightly coloured fluorescent coloured blob fly, which is made from, from Fritz material. Um, an out-and-out attractor fly it doesn't look like anything in nature that, that a trout would eat, but very effective sparkler flies. So early in the season you're generally looking more often at attractor flies fished deeper down. Uh, so you would need to have those orange blobs, black ones certainly. So you're looking at attractor flies, fish deeper, early in the season, in the early spring when the water's still cold. As the, the weather warms up, the fish tend to switch on more to the insect life, perhaps the buzzers, I suppose, the midge pupae that live in the water are probably the first thing to, to become active in the springtime. So you'd need a selection of buzzers, varying colours, blacks, olives, greens, uh, would be the, the more usual colours. And other more general nymphs like the, the gold rib hare's ear or the dial-back nymph or crunches, pheasant tails, things like that that are generally impressionistic of smaller, they look like food even though they might not represent anything, anything specific. And then as the spring gives way to the summertime, the warmer weather and fish are more likely to be interested in, in getting active and taking flies off the top and then you'd, you'd have a whole range of dry flies to, to fall back on. Uh, the thing goes full circle and at times in the middle of the summer when it's very hot you're again looking to fish those attractor flies deep because the hot weather and the high water temperature can send the fish back deep again. So you might well have to revert to those fast sinking lines and blobs and attractor flies once again. But as you get into autumn, again the, the more impressionistic insecty type flies plus coarse fish fries, you well know Phil, come more on the menu so you might be looking at more specific fish imitations for the back end of the season, certainly October, even into November. Can we refine the question a little bit further now to essential flies? What are the patterns, colours and sizes you reckon see more time in the water than the rest? Attractor-wise, the orange blob, or the two-tone blob, which is a blob that's half yellow, half orange. Nymph-wise, it would probably be a, a dial-back nymph, with a, perhaps with a red holographic rib. Or a green holographic rib. Dry flies, certainly the shipman's buzzers, the bob's bits type flies, hoppers, and um, a daddy long legs. We've been catching very well on a, a foam bodied daddy long legs just recently, which which seems to work even when there's no daddies about. So I suppose on the on out the season it will be those nymphs, that blob, perhaps a cat's whisker booby as well, in competition size obviously, and a cormorant booby, a black booby known as a cormorant, would be another good one. And from my past experience of fly fishing with you, once, even in a competition on estuary, which is most unusual for me, I know that you will only give any particular pattern so long. What's the thinking behind that? First thing is, if you are confident that the fish are still in the area where you have been catching them, if you're confident they haven't gone anywhere, and, for example, let's say there's been no huge change in, in, in the weather, if a storm hasn't blown up, or if you've got reason to believe those fish are still there, 
but you're just not getting takes anymore, that would be the time to change fly. And it can be as simple as that. If you're sitting on fish and you pull a black and green Viva lure through them and you catch three fish, and this is particularly true if you're catching and releasing them as well, it can be more of a problem. But certainly you can go through an area where you know the fish, you're confident the fish are there, you catch two or three on a certain fly, you throw out again and get a little bit of a pull, and you throw out again and get a follow but the fish doesn't touch the fly, and you throw out it three more times and get nothing, that would be the time to change colour. And, and it can literally be instant. You put an orange fly on and chuck in the same area and you'll get a confident take and a hook up first time. And you, you can go through the flies colour-wise just like that, up and down. Go from a black and green to an orange to a cat's whisker type to an olive colour and then back round again. And, and that way you can keep the catch rate coming where perhaps a pleasure angler turning up in the same place might throw his anchor over, which they are uh, prone to doing. Throw over, catch two fish in the first half an hour of the day and then catch nothing till tea time when the anchor comes up and they go home. And the thought process isn't really there. And, and that's fine for those people who want to do that. But if you're interested in catching fish and getting as good as you can and as efficient as you can at catching them, then by trial and error you come up with these things and you do try things and you, you realise that although fish aren't uh, noted and trout in particular aren't noticed for being especially smart there are times when you know they will infuriate you and you think well there's no, that's a good fly and I'm putting it through the fish why aren't I catching well the answer to that is I don't really know but I know that if you change colour you can catch you can start catching again so you, you just adapt with what you find just through trial and error really taking change in choice one stage further Probably the last piece in this particular jigsaw is location out on the water. Many areas of a lake may well have the potential to attract and hold fish under the right conditions, be that seasonal, due to weather conditions, or short-lived potentials to feed well. So give us a quick overview on determining where to fish. There's a lot of different factors. Practice will be one of them. In a competition scenario, you've, you've done your practice on the lake, even on a big lake, you'll have narrowed it down to certain bays or certain areas of that lake and that's literally just through covering acre after acre of water and noting down what you find and where you find them. If you're just turning up at a lake, let's say in a non-competition scenario, for example just say Grafham Water. You're going to Grafham Water in May, the weather's not unseasonably cold or hot you know that through past experience it's probably going to be good for buzzer fishing. So you would tend to select those areas of the lakes which A, you've caught in previous seasons, where you know there's good habitat for buzzers, generally relatively shallow water with, with a silty bed, and, and just through experience you'd know where those areas are, and they can be quite extensive. You wouldn't have to put it on a on a sixpence and hit to, to get on the, the only place you're going to catch. These are big areas of water where you can expect the fly to be hatching at that time of year, you know that the fish will follow the food and you know that they, generally speaking, that the, the fish will be eating buzzers in this area. And that's why you would, you know, that's the sort of reasoning you'd use to, to set off for a, for a certain patch of the lake. Other times, and one of the things in, in trout fishing and in match fishing is never say never and never say always because there's always exceptions to what you think is going to happen and they crop up quite regularly. Let's say you've put in the practice, then on match day the weather does a complete 180 turn, preventing or deterring you from visiting that area of the lake again. 
It could even be that despite being fishable, the new scenario is simply no longer conducive to realistically getting a result at that spot. How then would you choose an alternative? What I'm getting at here is do you have a picture in your mind as to where fish attracting habitat is most likely to be, and on what are you basing those assumptions? It would depend on the nature and the the type of change, but you might start off, for example, going back to the same places where you caught fish the previous day, and perhaps trying a different technique. It might have gone bright and windy, and you might think of perhaps putting the flies a little bit deeper than the day before when it was 100% cloud cover and fish were rising for fun. You might assume that the fish had stayed in the same place, but you might just need to go a little bit deeper for them, perhaps, and fish with different flies. But at other times, you might think the fish have followed the wind and to, to go and fish wherever the bottom of the wind is. It would just depend on the circumstances, but yeah, it happens not infrequently that that's the case, that you, you practice can give you information in one way but sometimes it can confuse you and, and perhaps stop you from doing as well as if you just turned up at the lake on the day of the match but overall it must be said that on average you're much better off practicing than not practicing for the odd time that uh, things do go wrong. Some of the biggest reservoirs such as Rutland look like inland seas. As you know I'm a small boat fisherman who fishes out of choice in the open sea so I'm used to a bit of chop and swell. But I have to say that there have been times out on those bigger lakes when i felt less than comfortable, if not a little anxious. One thing about a big lake though, is that always somewhere there'll be a sheltered shore. It might not be attracting fish, but sometimes safety is the greater consideration. So what, if anything, is provided in terms of safety equipment at these fisheries, or is that left up to the individual to provide for him or herself? Most of the big reservoirs will provide you with a life jacket now. But it's true to say that in windy weather, if the fish happen to be on a big lake like you're saying, like Rutland Water for example, it's a strong westerly which is blowing straight onto the dam, through the main bowl and straight onto the dam. If the fish are at the bottom of the wind, that's where you've got to be. You know, It's a choice for the individual really and, and most, anyone who's serious about getting a result in the competition, if it's not fishable, the fishery staff won't let you go out. If it's on the edge of being fishable and it's going to be rough and unpleasant and, and, and nasty conditions, I'm afraid it's a matter of just having to go where the fish are and put up with it. Being careful as well, it's about boat handling to a large degree and that kind of depends on the person who you're drawn in the boat with and whether you're on the engine or is the person who is on the engine, are they, are they competent in what they're doing? And I have been in a few situations where the person I'm in with was obviously unaware of, of how to drive a boat in a strong wind. I'd just do the sensible thing and, and if you're fishing onto a damn wall in a, in a 20, 25 mile an hour blow, you want to make sure the engine's going to start you know, before things become a problem because what you don't want is a misfire or a flooded engine at the wrong time. So it's basically about being sensible, being prepared, turning the boat slowly, Bringing the drogue back in, of course, because we, we do use drogues to slow the uh, the drift of the boat down. So you bring that in to make the boat as stable as possible and just very carefully point the nose back upwind. And if it's ne if necessary, quarter throttle and just very slowly uh, creep back upwind. And all the while you know that as the driver, at the engine end, you're going to get wet. There's going to be breaking waves coming over and, and wetting you and just managing the water in the boat as well. So... 
you just got to stick it out sometimes. In my experience of big waters, which is limited, the best of the fishing does seem to be onto a windblown shore, which introduces the temptation at times to go where perhaps you shouldn't ought to go. Have you ever felt pressured enough, despite your own better judgement, to do that? And more to the point, in so doing, have you ever come unstuck? Probably true, like you're saying, and all you're really doing is, is just... I'll just repeat myself that... Um, it all depends on how prepared you are to put yourself where the fish are and your boat partner because it is ultimately a, a team decision, a pair decision between the two of you on competition day as, as to what you're both prepared to do and whether you're prepared to put up with the rough stuff to catch a few fish or whether to take the more conservative approach and perhaps go and fish somewhere where, where there aren't. It's more comfortable but there aren't as many fish. Going back to the drogue for a moment, while it is an essential piece of kit on a windy day for lock style fishing, it also has the potential to be a dangerous liability. Used as they often are hooked over one of the row locks, they can make a boat dangerously unstable when wallowing beam onto a lively swell by preventing it from riding as it should over the crest of a wave as it passes under the hull. Have you had any experiences regarding drogue problems? Yeah, the, the biggest problem I see with people drifting is the position of where they're seated, particularly in windy weather, it doesn't really matter much if it's just a light breeze or a, or a calmish day. Even if you're using the drogue and there's not a lot of wind, it's not a problem. But the windier it becomes, the more critical it is whereabouts you position your body weight in relation to the centre of the boat. Because you'll see often people want to give themselves room in front of themselves when they're casting over the front of a boat. They, they'll want extra space in front of them so the fly line can not get tangled up so they can stretch the legs out a little bit more but that pushes them towards the rear of the boat obviously where the drogue is and if you're drifting behind sometimes you're drifting behind a boat and you can see the angle which it's tilting backwards at because the people aren't sitting centrally in the boat they're sitting two-thirds three-quarters the way back on the thwart which tilts the boat backwards the drogue's trying to bull the boat over that way anyway and it's not a surprise that incidents do happen and waves, you get a big breaker coming over the back of the boat and you can be in bother. So the thing to do is just basically make sure you are sat centrally on the centre of the thwart to give yourself, um, give your boat a chance of not being pulled over backwards, basically. Any near misses yourself? I've had a few frightening days, not, not drogue related, but certainly being out on a lake when perhaps you probably should have stayed at home. I fish in Ireland occasionally and... Uh, I've been on Loch Corrib in, in some frightening weather conditions where you're fishing broadside on, and those boats are quite big, to be honest. They are like sort of 18, 19-foot wood jobs. They are quite stable as far as they go. But it is a bit disconcerting when you're drifting behind another boat and you're losing it between waves. <laughs> as you're bobbing down and up, you're actually losing sight of a boat in front of you. That probably tells you, you know, a little bit of... Uh, you should be thinking twice about whether you should be out or not. And I do remember one time on Loch Sheelin, where um, we were fishing. It's, that's a 4,000-acre lake. And we got to the bottom of it and, and turned around to come back. Uh, and the, the wind had, had just got so bad. That was a frightening trip on. That was, that was genuinely frightening because we had to go the length of that lake at sort of quarter throttle and maximum pitching up and down it took us something like an hour and a half to get back and it was it was touch and go at times the big thing i'm taking away from this interview is that boat competition fishing is dominated by the need to fish lock style on the drift 
Is that exclusively the case, or do you sometimes put the anchor down, and are there perhaps any disadvantages to be had from fishing teams of flies down the wind on the drift? Yeah, the main advantage with Oxtail fishing on the drift is that you're covering water. You know, you're fishing big lakes a lot of the time, and to limit yourself by throwing the anchor over is reducing your chances of, of catching well because you want often to be to be covering lots of different water to, to meet the fish as they travel towards you, if you like. Fishing on the drift allows you to do that. The only disadvantage would be sometimes it's a little frustrating if you're fishing, trying to fish on the drift on a lake and you catch a couple of fish and all of a sudden a pleasure angler with an anchor motors behind you where you've just caught. There's the rustle of the anchor chain and uh, the splash and that's that drift. Uh, spoiled for the day because they generally don't move once they've found a couple of fish that can be frustrating and you know having an anchor allows you to exploit areas of fish where they are tightly shoaled or tightly packed an anchor can uh, can certainly let you sit on those fish all day if, if you're that way inclined so for those people who've never tried it give us a quick working overview of just exactly what lock style fishing means and how it's done well what you would do is you would you would set your boat up with a drogue, as we've talked about a drogue just recently. Now, what that is, is basically a, a parachute. In competitions, it, it has to be no larger in area than 25 square feet, so 5 foot by 5 foot. And you can attach that at two points on the gunnels of the boat. So what you do is you motor to your chosen area, you turn the boat broadside to the wind, you throw the drogue over the back of the boat, and then you fish out over the front so you're fishing sideways in the same direction as the wind, casting over the front of the boat with the wind behind you. That's, that's basically the way you do it. And you're drifting down onto your line all the time, so you must retreat even to keep flies such as buzzers static on a tight line. But what if you actually want those flies to move? What would be a suitable retrieve rate there? It's a good question because yeah, you have to, in, in a big wind when the boat is drifting quickly... Uh, you might be, if, if you're using a, a pulling technique where you, you're pulling attractor flies, you have to subtract the speed that the boat is drifting forward because you might be pulling fast through the line through your hands fast, but it might only be moving, the flies might only be moving half the speed that you think they are. That can be a factor. And as you just mentioned before, if you're nymph fishing, sometimes you want to fish static or you want to fish the nymphs moved very slowly. Now you've got to be careful, you have to. Look very carefully at the line. If you're fishing a floating line, you can look at the line line on the surface and, and, and tell whether the line's under tension or not. So if you want to fish static, you've got to make sure that that line is, has a degree of slack in it and you're not retrieving too quickly to move the flies. When, when that static presentation is sometimes the most effective way of catching, and some people can't keep their hands still, you know, and they want to be pulling the flies and moving them all the time, but it takes a bit of... Um, willpower to sometimes keep your hand from pulling the line back too quick because you might be uh, damaging you might think you're, you're fishing harder or better because you, you're pulling faster but no it's not sometimes the most effective way as a counter to the self-imposed pressure of working for and during a competitive day out sometimes under questionable conditions and always to the max what do you do for relaxation in terms of fishing i've got a family i've got three three lads who take up a lot of my spare time uh, I do take them course fishing and the eldest one comes out fly fishing with me occasionally and I spend time that way. But I suppose most of my fishing time for me is either fishing a competition, 
practicing for a competition directly or just trying to spend time on a lake where I know there's going to be one in a, a couple of weeks. So sort of semi-practicing if you like. It's not true to say I don't do any pleasure fishing. Of course I do. I go up and down and fish different lakes and I try and travel around the country a bit and fish a lot of the different reservoirs just to uh, to keep me hand in if you like. But I don't have as much free resource and time to uh, to go and be fishing as often as a lot of the uh, the top guys do. But you know, I don't I don't do so bad. And outside of competitions, what would your favourite style of fishing be? Probably on a lake called Draco Water in Rugby. A prolific reservoir fishery, very well run, well stocked. It's a big lake, it's eight hundred acres, but it's not so colossal that getting from one side to the other is, is gonna be a huge uh, problem in terms of time. It's 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 manageable. It's a big lake, but it's manageable. You can fish all around the lake in a day if you wish. And I suppose chosen techniques, I like to fish the nymphs on the floating line, dry flies if possible. That's the way I like to fish given a choice. Sometimes you don't have a choice, but given a choice, that's how I, I, I like to fish. Uh, the back end of the year, the, the fry feeding on that lake in particular, and a lot of the big reservoirs, the fish turn onto coarse fish fry. And the, you can get some good sport pulling uh, fry imitations through the top or, or fishing a floating fry imitation is always, always very good, enjoyable fishing. One of my most memorable days on the fry feeders with you, and I'm not sure if it was at Rutland or Draycott. Yeah, it was at Draycott, yeah. Was fishing at anchor with floating suspender minkies. That's it, yeah. Yeah, you won't get a better uh, floating fry pattern than a, a, what we call a minky fly, which is a... Basically, a streamer just used with uh, tied with a, a strip of mink fur that's, that's retained on the skin. When it gets wet, it behaves in a very lifelike, mobile manner. And if if you pull the thing through the water, it kind of snakes around a little bit like a fish. So that's very good for tying fry imitations with. What you're doing with the suspender minky is you're, you're tying a, a chunk of buoyant foam at the head end. Basically, you throw it out and it sits there on the top like a, an injured fry, if you like, static, just after uh, the trout have been through and attacked the fry. They'll sometimes come back and look for the injured fish so that they can sit down without too much, expending too much energy, which is what they do. And I think you found that day, Phil, they do come up and uh, they do like that fly, presented static on the top. Yeah, real edge of the seat stuff, that. Right, final question. What are your future plans and ambitions? We mentioned one earlier. I would like to get me England uh, cap. That would be nice if I could manage to achieve that. I'd like to keep fishing in the same team with the same people and and enjoying me fishing. We we aren't a win at all costs team. We are a, a group of six blokes who who like each other's company, and that is is one of the main. Um, plus points going for our team. We're not a win-at-all-costs mentality type team. We aren't located in the Midlands of England, close to all the competition venues, but despite that, we like to give it a go and, you know, we, we give things a shot, but we all get on and I'd like things to continue in that manner, really. And sometimes that pays off. Sometimes. Every dog has its day and I've probably had mine, but we'll keep trying to have more. Actually, doing this interview has allowed me to mentally rediscover what I love so much about fly fishing the bigger reservoirs. As a small boat angler myself, 
When the wind is blowing too hard to put to sea, as it so often is these days, you can still find enough shelter with the potential to get some good fish most days, if in our case you're willing to travel. However, the link between the sea and the reservoirs, in fishing terms, is a little more tenuous, as trout live in a three-dimensional world, as opposed to the two dimensions the rest of us are more used to dealing with. My thanks then to Ian Gaskell for helping unlock the door into that three-dimensional scene here, and for outlining the thinking behind the competitive side of fly fishing today. Mm -hmm.